Yeah, I turned 40 on Sunday. You want to hear a crazy story about my birthday? Go. All right. So I'm like kind of a, you know, creepo. So for my birthday, I decided I'm going to go with my dog, Keanu, who you guys have seen many times. And we're just going to go for a hike. I don't really like parties and things. And 40 felt weird. So I'm like, let's just go for a hike. So we went off to North Carolina, went on this hike. I'm driving back Sunday afternoon. And uh, I witnessed a hit and run car accident on the freeway, on the highway, um, on 285. A car sideswipes an SUV and the SUV like flips off. Yeah, hits the um, whatever, like the barrier, flies through the barrier and lands upside down in a ditch. And the car that sideswiped that car almost hits my car and then just takes off. And so like, I'm like, oh my goodness. So like, get off the highway. It took me about a quarter mile to get all the way onto the shoulder because I I had to turn like four lanes. And I just start running towards this like smoky flipped car. And when I get there, like some other folks had gotten there too, uh, had gotten out of their cars too to try to help. And like, I'm yanking on the doors, trying to get it open to see like who's in there. And I open the back door of this car and there's a woman and she's like trying to crawl out of the car. So I'm like, get out of your seatbelt as if you can. And she's like trying. And then I just grab her and I pull her out of her like, gasoline infested smoky upside down car if i showed you a photo of this car you would not believe me that someone survived this woman had a bruised like like shoulder uh, what is it um what do you call it the like seatbelt strap burns or whatever yeah. and some bruised ribs she's good she got out she came out of that thing all she did was rip her boot and you know she was disoriented obviously in shock but she was fine and it was unbelievable. So anyway, that was my birthday party. Suddenly makes you, you know, think, think about. Yeah. Put 40 in the perspective real good, man. And so like, uh, good for you. that's what I did for my birthday. No, good for her for like, well, coming um, out of that thing unscathed, you know, she's, she, she like she crushed it. Pun intended. Not everybody stops, you know? Yeah. I mean, there were other people. We stopped and like helped her get out of there. And then, you know, the cops came and like, it was a whole thing. But um, hearing anyway. The story, hearing the story, uh, you know, makes me, my, a couple months ago, my mom was driving and, you know, we, I can't, she lives in Maryland. I'm not near her. She, her car hit, hit uh, a hole in the road and did 360 and Oof. flipped over onto the median, right? Oh my goodness. Uh, but but for her dog was in the car too in the back seat and uh but f- but for you know some good people running to her aid and helping her and the dog out of the car like the car was totaled you know <laughs> like like and um and she's super scared and and so like uh that resonate that part resonates with me a lot you know that's my mom and yeah that's why uh, and you want you want you, you want yourself to be the type of person that pulls over for everyone's mom, you know, everyone's yeah. mom, cousin, uncle, friend, whatever, like, that's what you want. So like, you know, the, the, the people that stopped matter a lot, an awful yeah, lot. Yeah, I totally agree. Look, this is my new friend, Pam, man. She survived, not a scratch. 
Good, good. She's a solid American, man. She did it. She did yeah. it. But hey, shout out to your mom too, man. Like, it's got to. I've never. I've been in a car accident, but nothing like that. And like, I can't imagine what that feels like. Like, literally, your life has to be flashing as your car is flipping and doing whatever it is out of your control. Like, that has to be a very disorienting. I was in a. Car. I was in a car that went like this across the highway once. It's it's it's. Rough. You did that on purpose, though, during that police. Chase. I wasn't even driving. <laughs> <laughs> the driver the police case that didn't end well uh, <laughs> it was me and happy bear yeah and can we talk about how one of those bears back there is on a swing but the swing is not attached to anything like or is it attached to the rainbow like i can't figure out what's happening with that you swing know, you, but... you're you're not opening your mind enough it's it's, <laughs> it's attached to the rainbow and the, the, uh, the one the one sliding down the rainbow it's attached to the rim. I love that these Care Bears have heart tattoos like on their butts. Like yeah. that's 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 like <laughs> kind of weird energy. So our <laughs> guest, our guest is our guest this this week is Chris Hart, <laughs> uh, the chair of uh, privacy and data security at this firm Foley Hoag, um, which you know probably people like people of our types have heard of. But yeah, uh, of uh, I, I mean he's just the reason we picked Care Bears is he's just like got that vibe <laughs> like he's a snuggle bear he cares <laughs> he's friendly he's kind he's thoughtful he teaches students but he also can like get into litigation and and like he's got a huge huge brain and he's very well read which yeah. we'll see which is, that's <laughs> he, <laughs> he lives in a library, <laughs> <in a> library. <laughs> uh. But anyway, that was this was a great conversation with him. And well, that's dope, man. Let's get to it, man. On the right. rainbow. <laughs> slide down the rainbow. Yeah, slide down the rainbow. All right, here we are. Right the Care Bears episode with Chris Hart from Foley Care Hoag Bears. and uh, his extensive uh, leather-bound library <laughs> behind him. <laughs> the Library of Alexandria back there. Look at rich mahogany. <laughs> Good, man. Look at all that knowledge back there. Analog knowledge, man. Analog knowledge. You know, it's like, it's kind of like being a prepper, you know? It's like you can't get all your knowledge <laughs> offline. And so, like, when there's the, like, you know, electron apocalypse and all the computer systems fry, you'll be good. Yeah, I never thought about it as being sort of like a knowledge prepper. Yeah, man, you're a knowledge prepper, man. But it's it's not, good. not a bad way of looking at it. And the truth is, like, um, uh, I... I really, I really read better, retain better with analog, right? Yeah. Like a book or I print out, like I'm killing trees all the time. Like I've got, yeah. you know, I read cases or whatever the case may be and I mark it up and I've got old tattered copies of stuff and I highlight it and that's, I just read better that way. Was that, I like both of you, yeah, was that your experience in law firms? Because that was mine. I had an old school partner who was my boss and he was printing everything and he was like, had an assistant that was printing everything and would hand me printed copies of things and I would just say, I'm going to review it on my computer. <laughs> he would just be like, I, what are you talking about? You know, I, so I started practicing, I was a summer associate uh, in 2004. That was the first time I was ever working as a lawyer in a law firm and at that point people were kind of doing it both ways right i mean most of the federal courts had already switched to uh, electronic dockets state courts really hadn't um 
and and definitely the younger attorneys were doing everything on reviewing on PDF or reviewing on their screens or whatever. It's still iPad still wasn't out, but uh, but for the most part, people were reviewing on their computers. But yeah, I mean, like everybody had a different style. The older attorneys, like they would have paper files on their desks, well organized. That's where they'd store things. I mean, the the one thing I'll say is that even though even though I read and retain better with the paper, I store everything electronically because. I'm just otherwise not, I don't have a good organizational system on paper, right? So this is as good as it gets. <laughs> yeah, it's looking good. Decoration back there. Um, how many, like speaking about the proliferation of like screen time, yeah. how many screens do you guys have in front of you right now? Like that, this moment, count your phone if it's in front of you. Okay. Go, let's do this. I've got a desktop, I've got a desktop and my phone. Oh, you're doing What's your situation looking like? Uh, all right. Well, um, let's see. I'm wondering if there's a way I can show you. Hold on. I don't think I can show you. While he does that, I have my big monitor, 27 inches, two laptops. So that's three. The portal, four, two phones, five, six. Plus, there's a screen back there, seven. I mean, my question is why? But I, look, see, Eddie's got a whole bunch too. So I don't feel as bad. I don't feel as bad. Mobile screen and a phone. So I've got four. I've got seven screens in this room. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And some of it is like, so I've got. I, like I've got my personal laptop where I do like my uh, all of this for work. And I've got the work phone and then I've got the private personal phone. It's a it's bad. It's bad. Yeah, but, it, a, lot but it's, it's, a lot of screens. It, it is sensible in the sense of what you just described, right? Is that as you're separating devices based on the information that you're transmitting or using, like what's the purpose, then that's a different device. And it's honestly, it's like, if you're gonna, if you're doing multiple things, it makes a lot of sense. I just, I can't live that way. Like I just I I can't do it. I just can't do it. People always say like, why do you have a personal phone and a, and a work phone? And like, that seems tedious. But for me, especially on the weekends, like. The people who need to reach me, if there's an emergency, will call me on all the things. But like the routine stuff that could catch your attention on a Friday or a Saturday unnecessarily that can wait till Monday, I try to like shield myself from that on the weekends. Obviously, if there's an emergency, I'll get tracked down. But if it's like the, hey, I didn't like what, you know, like your feedback on this document, can you take a look? And I get that on a Saturday morning, I'm like, shit, now I gotta go look because I'm intrigued and all these things. So this phone, which, Wow, it looks like crap, but this is my work phone. It does not leave this room unless it's during working hours, right? Like if it's, if I've got to step out, obviously it goes with me. And then the private one's always with me because, you know, uh, DoorDash or whatever. You have to ask for that phone or do they issue it to you? Oh, Facebook just sent me a phone. Yeah, Facebook just sent me a phone, which is great. And a laptop, obviously, and all the other stuff. Yeah, anyway, It's a lot, man. And then we, I know this is like a privacy podcast. Think about my privacy. <laughs> it's, a, it's kind of like an apocalyptic nightmare, right? Like, it's just, it's wild, man. It's wild. I think we're the worst offenders in some way. Yeah, yeah. People that do this for a living. So, Chris, you, that's a good place to start. Like, yeah. why, why are we the worst offenders? People that <laughs> understand deeply all of the data that's being collected. You've probably litigated cases, which means you've gone deeper than 
any of us have gone on, you know, some of these things, why do we, is that, is that the driver that like, cause we know about it, we're like, okay, well test on me, you know, I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's funny. So, so um, it's a, it's a great question. And I have, and I have wondered about this. Um, I wonder if it's sort of the phenomenon you see sometimes with um, like psychologists, right? Like they're constantly handling other people's problems and dealing with other people's problems that like, when it comes to like the leftover mental energy, it's just draining, right? Am I really, do I really need to go and purge all the stuff on my phone and yeah, you know, that sort of thing. So I do, I do wonder if some of it's that way, that way, but, um, but also there's a part of me that wants to say in some respects, well, speak for yourselves because um, I did, I did go through uh, recently, I, I went through my phone to purge a bunch of stuff and then also to change settings um, about what's shared and when stuff is on and, you know, if, if I can share my location and that sort of thing, because I do get really worried about that for myself. And, you know, I'm, in addition to wearing the privacy hat, I also do, for example, pro bono immigration work. Pro bono immigration work during the Trump administration, uh, especially pre-pandemic when I was traveling, worried me. Um, and so, you know, I had, I had that going, I had that concern going on. Um, which really wasn't about I'm a privacy lawyer and I know what I'm doing. It's more, you know, I'm I'm worried about this phone getting confiscated when I come back in, um, uh, in through customs. So, um, so I so it might be it might be just some combination of dealing with other people's problems and no time for your own. But also, like I know what I care about. Uh, I know I know what I care about, and that I do deal with that stuff. Part of it for me is just in addition to the things you said, is just the comfort level that I have with how boring my information is. And like, do you, do you want to know my location? I'm picking up a child at school and I am, you know, driving to a restaurant. There's nothing going on there. So you want to know where I've looked on the internet? Like, be my guest. It's boring. And so yeah, but like, I don't like that. I, that's a very, I, th like, this is why I'm always talking about like the privacy elites arguments, right? If you were a black person, you would care. Yeah. I'm an ordinary Latino per person. During the George Floyd protest here in Atlanta, one of the things I did was like, I advised protesters. Like, I don't practice law. In, I don't practice law in Georgia and I didn't give legal advice. But I said, you know what? Leave your phone at home. I know you want to take pictures. If you're going to do that, put it in airplane mode and record whatever you have to, but you don't have to do it in real time. Because as we saw in the New York Times, they literally posted like protester movements during the, uh, you know, during last year's like uh, events, right? And so like, do you really like, are you doing something legal? Yes. M well, most protesters, sure, are exercising their right to speech and, and to uh, critique the government, which, which is inherent at their birth, according to our legal founding documents. And so they're, they're exercising their right. But we know that that information can be used against you. I mean, I, I like that's scary to me, even though like to your point, like when you look at it in the context of your mundane, ordinary life and mine, too, like it doesn't seem that big a deal. But if I went every Saturday to the, you know, political meeting for my edge political group, like I don't, that isn't, that can be used. It will be used against me. Like J. Edgar Hoover proved that you blackball people based on like where they went and who they hung out with. Like, that's not cool. It's a good call out, right? Add it to the list of, of things that um, privileged white people uh, 
don't have have the luxury have the luxury to not sometimes think about right in in this world i I think it's a really good point the other other thing i'll say is that um you know uh we're we're lawyers and and we we are hyper vigilant about the privilege and confidential information that's being transmitted in our devices and that's mostly what i do on my devices right so that's that, and and I'm and I'm very very concerned about making sure that that I'm you know properly encrypting certain kinds of information or only using box for certain kinds of things or only using my email for other kinds of things my my work email so so there is and because it's like eighty percent of what I'm doing on the devices then then I do I do feel like it takes up a lot of my mental space as opposed to Peter notwithstanding your point which I think is excellent. You know, as opposed to like, I'm on the Peloton and I've got, I've got my app up and I kind of don't care what the terms say about who, right. who knows that I, you know, had a hundred kilojoules of output. <laughs> That's good work, man. Good work. But your point is, your point is a solid one, which is like the phone specifically, like no other device in history has become an extension of our thoughts, like of our mind. It is like the... Like we talk about, you know, the singularity and all these things. I mean, my mind lives here in a lot of ways. Like, you know, how I'm, if you want to know how I feel about my girlfriend right now, just go see my text messages. You'll know without me saying anything, you'll know if I'm mad at her, if I'm happy, if she's getting on my nerves, if, if I'm getting on her nerves, like just by like, not even by reading the text, just by knowing how often we text. Like if we have a really busy morning, you can imagine that we've, Got a lot to say that day. If we're not talking for three days straight, you can deduce some things from that. Like you don't even have to see the substance of the of the communications. Just know the cadence of the communications to learn so much about what I'm feeling and thinking that it is. Uh, you know, this is this is a this is, this is a soup. Let me say it a different way. We should take as many measures as we can and have the capacity to to protect the information that is on this phone. And the information isn't just my photos and the like actual text of conversations, but just my activity and interaction with the device. Do you think there was, and I'll ask you both this, do you think there was a fulcrum moment when, when, you know, we talk a lot about Europe and the differences between the United States and the fact that, you know, in Europe, privacy is a fundamental right, been around longer, codified longer, do you think there was like a fulcrum moment in the United States and maybe it was mobile phone or something when like, when that, that changed, like when it became to your point, Pedro, like where we adopted technology so much that it came to, to a head and, and now our relationship and reliance on the digital device in the digital world reached a point where it became, it became fundamental because we did that as opposed to like some other factor within in Europe, we look at historical, you know, historical precedent or things that happened in history that led to that, that uh, codified belief there versus here. I think in the context of mobile phones and it happened when everything uplinked to the cloud, right? Like when the smartphone became less a device and more a compa- permanent compact. Like I can swap out this iPhone today and in 30 minutes, essentially it contains all the same information, right? Like 
it, it's all there. It just traps like the the substrate is the like physical device, but like the iPhone is more than a device. It's a companion, right? Like it goes with me everywhere, even when I don't have the same physical device, right? Like, and so I think sometime in two thousand eight or two thousand nine, like with the emergence of iCloud or Google Play, whatever Google Cloud calls their Android thing. Um, like that's not just a part of my mind space. It just is. And it's permanent and it's forever. And unless I take like really severe action, it's just there and follows me around at all times. Like think about our iMessages and WhatsApp, like we just upload them to the cloud. They're always there forever. They never go away. They never disappear. It's pervasive insight into your mental state. It, 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 that's what I think is the like the moment where the device became part of your consciousness or an extension what of it. Think, what do you think, Chris? Maybe it was in one of those books behind you. Yeah, man. <laughs> I, I've never read one, so I don't know. Uh, it's 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 just my background. Um, you know, I think that's a great point, Pedro. I, I guess I would couple it. I, I don't want to lose sight of the hardware and the ubiquity of it because, um, you know, I. I'm, I'm thinking about when the iPhone came out and how sexy and amazing it was for um, the middle class in the United States and Western Europe. But, you know, once you had Android devices and you had um, cheap means of producing mobile devices globally, um, you know, it's one thing for rich Americans to be able to you know, it's it's another thing for everybody else around the world to, to access to the cloud. So I wouldn't want to lose sight of it's a great point. When it is to have cheap distribution of of these devices uh, for everyone. That's an excellent point. Um, and uh, I, I think we are seeing the emergence of like low bandwidth app tech, right? Like Facebook, for example, is kind of a leader on this. I'm not here to like talk about Facebook's greatness, but like there's low band, there's like Facebook Lite and Instagram Lite and WhatsApp is designed for like low bandwidth communications. Um, and other companies are doing the same stuff. Uh, so you're right. I, I, I think like most of the world hasn't had that moment, but I think they will. And then they're the most, at, the rest of the world is the most at risk, right? Like that is the key. And, and I think, and this is why I think your point is such a good one. And, and it ties into what you were saying before about sort of what lens are we looking at, at, at these things through. Um, you know, the, the, these are also devices that can potentially perpetuate forms of discrimination, right? Um, and and because, of, because of the way the data is, what data is collected and how it's used, um, it, it's, it is not lost on me that um, while there are great benefits to individuals to have this information uh, or to have these devices because you know you basically have as you would put it, an external brain um, uh, that and ease of contact and whatever else um, it, it does become a way to perpetuate forms of discrimination I mean I, I think this is such a crucial this is one of the issues of equity I think that we're facing now and that we will be facing in the foreseeable future that I think is deeply underappreciated. How do you and weave this in? I'll ask this to both of you. How do you weave this in? You both teach students. So how do you weave this concept in? If you do, I, I think you do. How do you weave this into discussions with students as you're trying to both give them the baseline kind of nuts and bolts of, of the stuff you're trying to teach them, but let them know like the, the breadth of these issues, you know, to, to, to what we just kind of, started talking about. 
so I, I, Peter, I want to hear what you have to say. I, so um, I teach, uh, I teach at Northeastern. Uh, I teach JD students. I also teach master students. And the first question that I ask um, uh, students in both sets of class, very different kinds of students, um, is, you know, what, what is privacy? What do you think it is? And what kinds of rules do you think should be, um, should be around uh, uh, whatever data you think ought to be private? Um, and I start with that question before they've really delved into the materials because I want to know what their basis of thinking is. And what's interesting to me is that the JD students, for the most part, are thinking about rights, 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 you know, sort of on an absolute level. And the master students are thinking about kind of business interests because they're sort of in the middle of that world. Um, and so I revisit this question a couple of times and I, I revisit it at the end of the course after we've gone through, it's a mostly a compliance course, but we also delve into issues of data ethics and AI. Um, and, and I asked them at the end, so essentially the same question, you know, what does, what does a world of, of, of protecting privacy actually look like? Um, and a lot of them end that course very concerned that um, it might not be possible to meet it because business interests are so strong um, that, uh, that an innovation is so necessary that, um, that it really just becomes a question of mitigating the harms um, that can come from um, uh, ubiquitous data use. So it's kind of, it's kind of an important theme in the course um, but but I, unfortunately, I think they leave my course far more depressed um, than, than they would otherwise. But Peter, I'm interested to know how you how you talk about these things. Yeah, I mean, look, it's along the same lines. Like we had a conversation yesterday in my class I teach on Tuesdays, and uh, you know, and it was we were talking about cross border data transfers, and like it makes talking to students because they don't have the experience and are there to learn is super interesting and informs how I talk with lawyers about a lot of stuff. Um, these are law students, so for future lawyers. But like, um, you know, we talk about cross-border data transfers almost constantly in the context of like protecting the, like data subjects' rights. Very rarely do we weigh that against other things, like their interest in free stuff or cheap stuff or like the all of the benefits that come along with like the free flow of data and information. Um, and so like the fact that the conversation is mostly had by policy wants in the context of policy in furtherance, I, I say in policy, I mean privacy, in the context of privacy, in furtherance of privacy is an incomplete discussion about cross-border data transfers. It's incomplete. The only premise and the only uh, issue in play when we're talking about cross-border data transfers is not privacy. There are many other things and weighing the privacy interest against all of the other benefits and, and, and quite frankly, other negative things involved, uh, other negative issues involved with, uh, with cross-border data transfers is important. Well, the first and only time I've had that conversation all year is in my class. It doesn't happen in the, in the, in the practitioner world because we're, you know, the, he the headwinds and the regulators focus is hyper on privacy. And I think that that's just an incomplete discussion. So that's part of the issue. And then like, you know, I don't, I don't live in Europe and I don't think of privacy as an absolute right. I don't. Um, and I think it's important to not be patriarchal as we think about the issue um, because Europe has a history of patriarchal thinking. <laughs> okay. And so like, you know, 
imposing their view about what it means when you ask what is privacy on the rest of the world is something we have to be, as people in other parts of the world should manage carefully, um, especially in the United States, as we think of the proliferation of privacy laws. Hey, listen, I'm a privacy advocate and I want to protect people, mostly from government, but also from corporations um, and, and from intrusiveness and to preserve people's right to exclude others from whatever space they want to carve out, carve out for themselves as private. With that said, I think that conversation has to be held in the context of other interests, the government's interest in preserving a peaceful society, uh, you know, the, you know, a company's interest in pursuing profit, uh, people's other interests that are in tension with their privacy interests, right? Like their interest in having the most access to the best information that they're most interested in reading. One of the examples is like, think like TikTok. What is TikTok without personalization? Like, what is it? It's a feed of random shit that I'm not interested in, right? Like if it's not personalized to me, TikTok is almost worthless. Reels, same thing. And so I clearly need to understand what's happening there as a user and know that like the idea to demand absolute privacy from TikTok makes TikTok a worthless proposition to be. Can I pick up on one thing you said because I, I think it's worth, it's worth just lingering on for a moment. Um, you, one of the, like, I think the key thing that you said there was um, you're a privacy advocate and people should be able to carve out and keep private the things that they want to keep private. Um, uh, and, and I get the sort of the sense of control and autonomy that, that go, goes with that. And I should say, by the way, in my class, there, there's never any agreement about what privacy is or ought to mean, but that's sort of beside the point. Um, the pro one of the problems is that um, there is a disconnect between what the average person thinks they are keeping private and what is actually being shared um, far beyond what they know. And part of it has to do with what you were pointing out before, Pedro, is the kind of inferences that you can make about certain kinds of data that you wouldn't even think would necessarily tell you about a person. But once it's aggregated, especially with other kinds of data, it tells you about a whole a person's entire life. And I don't, think that, I don't think that the average individual actually appreciates that. And that even though algorithms are terrible, um, and, and by I mean I don't mean terrible morally. I mean like, you know, even the best algorithms are still like they're bad. You know, they don't, they don't work very well. Um, they they even as they improve, but even now, like they can they can say a lot about a person that, that I think the average individual doesn't quite understand. So I think you know what that means to, to say that an individual can carve out a space that they can keep private. I think is I think it's actually more difficult than saying that. I think you're totally right. And I also think it's unrealistic and unreasonable to expect the average person to understand all of this. I don't think the way to solve for privacy protection is to put the burden on every person to be a privacy expert. That's not fair. Like, that's not the way to do this. That literally puts the burden on the people you're trying to protect to protect themselves in a way that is too complicated for them to actually execute on it in a meaningful way, right? And so we have to be more creative about this. But I don't think the answer is, well, then don't collect anything, right? Because then you render TikTok worthless. I don't think the answer is also, before you sign on to TikTok, spend nine hours learning about like, you know, algorithmic whatever, which is still going to be worthless because you're not an expert after nine hours. And then be faced with 100 choices to opt in and out of different types of things, depending on what your little sphere is, right? And so 
that doesn't mean I know what the solution is, but it also, but I know what the solution should not be, which is like, stop all data collection. That doesn't make sense to me, even though you hear that ruminate out in the world. Companies should not be allowed to do this. Companies should not be allowed to do that. Well, those are two broad sweeping for me, um, propositions for me. And then the other one is, well, people need to be informed and give consent. Shit, man. Like, like, how do you do that? Like, how do you do that uh, in a way that that's, is, meaningful. that's meaningful and that like, do people have to do this for every single app every single time? Or that, so then some proponents will say, well, give them global opt-out options. Okay, but maybe I don't want to globally opt-out. Maybe I don't want Facebook to know everything about me, but I do want my, I don't know, whatever, my sleep app or whatever it is to be able to do whatever it does, right? And so like global opt-outs don't work either. They're too broad a strokes. There's too many smart people involved for the solutions to be this simplistic, um, especially the ones that put the burden on the user. I just don't think that's fair. It's only going to get more complex over time. Yeah. Uh, as an example, AR and VR. Yeah. Those things proliferate. People are spending time there, getting marketed to, advertised to. Computer vision is reading their eyes, their movements. Um, it's only going to get more complex. And I think, I don't know the answer either. Nobody does yet, but it's got to be an evolution of privacy technology in, in some way that handles the interaction between the consumer and or the, the user and whatever it is they want to pick up, whatever their technology is that they want to pick up. Um, there has to be some sort of innovation there. And, I, you know, like, easy for me to sit here in, in my room and say that, but. Yeah, but I mean, there's but there's some, and there, there's already the development of, of some of these textbook tech, but it's sort of along the line that that Peter was um, was implying. Some of it is sort of the the um, privacy controls, right? Um, a lot of which is spurred on by uh, like the CCPA, right? So it, it's it's anticipating that really it's anticipating that regulation is going to look a lot like the provision of specific individual rights access, deletion, correction, et cetera. Um, and that there are specific controls that you can provide um, where, uh, where it's going to track those kinds of specific rights. I mean, I, th I think that's, that's, that's one sort of tech, it's global tech. But then some of it is much more specific, which is much more geared toward, you've got rights under the CCPA, you've got rights under the GDPR, um, you know, you're using XYZ kinds of health apps or wellness apps, you know, here's kind of a universal um, privacy control for this kind of information. So right now it's along a spectrum. I absolutely agree and it's going gonna, it's gonna to evolve. Um, but, you know, I, I, I have a certain amount of skepticism that, that the tech is going to solve the problem as opposed to create a new layer of problems. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're right. I mean, look, privacy-enhancing technologies are a piece of the puzzle here, right? Like, limit. Uh, you know, another piece of the puzzle is I think companies, many, are spoiled, right? Like, free-range access to data is also not the answer, right? And so, curtailing some of this, I, the term I like to use is like data diet. Like, I feel like ad tech, especially, but other sectors need to go on a much more data minimalistic diet of how much information they need to accomplish their goals, right? The problem, though, is if you are 
in the business of deriving insights or categorizing people based on certain characteristics. And you now do so with a tremendous appetite for data to get your results. And then you say, well, we're going to improve people's privacy because we're instead of using 100 pounds of data, we're going to use two pounds of data. But you get to the same result, right? And the result is this person is a likely buyer of X or that person is interested in Y or this person fits in this socioeconomic uh, bucket. Have you actually preserved people's privacy if you come up to the same probabilistic conclusions losing less data? I would argue that it's even more dangerous because the margin for error is potentially way higher. Um, and that, uh, you know, the insights you make based on like less information could be riskier, right? So I, I don't know, again, and this isn't answering any questions, but I don't know what the path forward is. Um, and I know that there are no broad stroke solutions like data minimization, one component, privacy enhancing technologies, another component. Um, uh, transparency, another component, getting permission, whatever that looks like, consent or otherwise, another component. But none of these are like silver bullets. I, I, they're just not. So then you end up in this complicated ecosystem where the burden is a lot of the time on the user. And that's tricky. So I, I don't know, man. Somebody got to do have an Einstein moment here. It, 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 like it just has to happen. Love it. We can't solve it here. I think um, we're not. Wait, that's not what I signed up for. I thought. Well, maybe I was talking. To, I was talking to, just to, just to give one more example. Like I was talking to a really smart group of people the other day on Clubhouse, the new like social media app, and they were talking about autonomous vehicles, and somebody said. You know, there's a lot of challenges with autonomous driving, including privacy, right? All the data collection that the vehicles do and all this other stuff. But one of the points that somebody made, this is an engineer, said, look, all the challenges people raise, the ethics of like autonomous decision making with vehicles that have lethal implications and all these, all the stuff that everyone's heard about. He says, look, the thing that makes it really hard to deploy autonomous vehicles is that the infrastructure or vehicles is built for human eyesight not self-driving cars. And so the amount of chaos that the ecosystem can create when like cars that are designed to operate one way are operating on a substrate, like the transportation infrastructure that's designed for a different type of driving is problematic. And I think in privacy, we have some of the same things. Like, you know, uh, tech companies especially, but just companies in general, like developed this tremendous appetite for data in the early 2000s executed on it and now all these rules are being imposed but the internet infrastructure is designed is not designed for any of this it's not designed for any of this and so like how do you operate the cloud in a world where like there's like balkanization and data localization rules like how does that work right and so we we, we you know i it's the same problem for us that i think the gentleman uh, highlighted for autonomous vehicles which is we're creating infra regulatory infrastructure on top of like technological infrastructure and there's an incompatibility there. But we can't like rebuild the internet tomorrow. Like that, when I say we, I mean the world. Like it's just not, how do we do that? No, or, or ever. And, and, I, and I wanna go back to, to, and I have a question for you, Andy, that I don't wanna forget, um, but remind me of it. Um, the, I wanna go back to what you were saying about you know, let's let's apply what are basically like fair information principles, right? Like principles from 1973 that are still with us and they're going to be with us forever, right? Um, you know, to to algorithms. Um, you know, what you're 
<laughs> the fundamental problem that you're pointing to, Pedro, there is that we've, we're sort of accepting a world in which uh, AI technologies create their own realities. Um, and that's like, that's our, that's fundamentally where we're going. And then it's a question of like, how much data are we going to allow those, those, uh, for that reality to be created without dealing with the, this central issue of, should we be letting AI technologies create realities, right? Create their own realities. I just don't think we're facing that right now as a, as a fundamental issue. Um, Andy, here's my question. This video is going to start with you having a Care Bears background. Yeah. Yeah. Took off. I think it's going to require some explanation. Okay. Yeah, man. But the camera's well, back. What happened here? Well, I took it off to show you all my oh my okay. screen setup. So I I didn't know if there was a good time to bring it back, but now that you now that you <laughs> I've invited it. You Can you guys? I, I, I haven't watched the Care Bears in many years. <laughs> I don't. I, I know. I got to get my game back up on Care Bears. But are they like genderless? I don't remember. Do the, the, the Care Bears have gender? So, okay, so Chris and I have kids around the same age. Uh, I have a seven and five-year-old. We don't watch a lot of Care Bears, but there was a, <laughs> there was a Netflix reboot. Really? Of the, yeah, they rebooted it, of course. Yeah, check this uh, out. In this one, the Care Bears are a motorcycle gang. <laughs> <laughs> are they a genderless motorcycle gang? I think the intent is genderless. Yeah, I mean that that was my perception is they're just like gender neutral, I guess. I don't know what the right term yeah, is. Yeah, one's but. happy, one's friendly. <laughs> they're, they're just they're they're cool. They're just cool. They're just cool. They're just cool. How progressive are the carers, man? Like that's dope. I I I don't know. I don't know. And I'm kind of afraid to find out how unprogressive they were. That's right. That's right. I'm sure if I Googled are the Care Bears racist? I'd get an education immediately. Because <laughs> I, yeah. like, I don't remember their accents, but I definitely don't remember the, you know, the Cuban Care Bear. I don't remember. Okay, that. so this is something I want to get to. So speaking of Care Bears and being friendly and kind, I want to ask Chris this question. Why is Duke basketball perceived as evil? It, they're, they're put into the same category as the Yankees in this evil empire Star Wars villain, like, and and I think the easy answer is just to say because they win a lot, but like, that's, that's not the easy answer, right? There's got to be another reason. Well, Christian Leitner, what's that? Christian Leitner. I'm interested also in your experience while you were there. You know, I mean, yeah. you, you were there. Yeah, I was. I was there. I was there for law school. I was there 2002, 2005, um, uh, and. And, and, and you're right, it's the Yankees and the others, frankly, the Patriots. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. um, it, it is kind of hard to escape the they always win. But there's also like Duke's not a scrappy team, right? The Pats aren't scrappy. The Yankees aren't scrappy. The Yankees are the highest that uh, have the highest payroll in, in major leagues and they have forever. Um, the Pats have Robert Kraft and Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. Like it's just an embarrassment of riches. You know, if you had um if you had a team oh God, I, don't, I don't know I, I don't know what the what the analog would be but basically like if if the if the browns somehow scraped it together for 20 years i, I don't know that people would hate the browns um but it's you know and duke is duke's and let's in, talk about reality okay like that. <laughs> that's the thing like when you when you you know it's it's hard so look on the 
trying to I think, let me make a better let me make a different the point chris is trying to make with a better example nobody hates the san antonio spurs and they are balling basketball team that's, right that's interesting nobody yeah. hates the san antonio spurs and they kick ass all day and you know why people hate the yankees and duke and the patriots and the cowboys who don't win because they're cocky that's why people hate those oh, teams so I was going to – I cocky is interesting. And, I, and when Duke loses, it's because they get cocky. But I actually think – so there, there's a positive way of thinking about this just, just for a moment, which is what – you can have a lot of money like the Cowboys and not have the management chops to put together a right. winning team. Right. Or you can have a lot of money and, and have geniuses who can put together a winning team, which I think describes the Patriots for 20 years, right? Um, so that's the positive way of looking at it. But, but I don't think that, that for those, those outside of those random orbits, I think it's like, it's an embarrassment of riches and they win all the time and nobody else benefits the way that they do. And like Duke is a top tier school outside of their basketball team. Their football team sucks. Um, but outside of their basketball team um, and they have an excellent basketball team and they win all the time. So I, I think it's like that combination of stuff. Right. I don't know, man. I don't know. I think, I think there's some. I think there's some teams that just have like the the DNA that makes them easy to just be annoyed at. Like I think Notre Dame football for a lot of people is like, ugh, right? Or, or unless you're a fan, then you're like, you're all the way. But there's no like guy who's like, yeah, I'm kind of ambivalent about Notre Dame football. Like, no, you either love that team or you hate that team. And I think Duke has that same do. energy. Yeah. Well, do you think America is perceived that way too? Yes. <laughs> yes. I think if I wasn't born here and, you know, and I grew up in an immigrant community, I think you, like outside of the world, you really are either a really big fan or you're not. But there's no like, eh, you know, like I don't want to diminish any country, but I don't think people have like really super strong positions on Canada. Like I'm not critiquing Canada, but like Canada's just kind of there. We know they're like kind of a nice actor. And for the most part, like they're, there isn't like a lot of hate towards Canada and there isn't a lot of like adulation towards Canada, but the U S I think it's one or the other most of the time. You know, I hesitated because I, I really haven't stopped to think about the post Trump world, yeah. what America looks like to the rest of the world now. Mm-hmm. Um, but setting that aside, I, I think, I think one of the reasons mm-hmm. opinions right is that, and this is unlike sports, sports teams, there is no getting outside of U.S. influence wherever you are in the world. Yeah. And not escape it. What, in, what, in whatever form it may be, cultural, financial, military, it doesn't matter. The U.S. looms large wherever you are in the world. And mm-hmm. I, think, I think that has to be a major factor in how people think about the U.S. I think that's right. And I, I would say, like, like, there's strong opinions on both sides. There's a lot of, like adoration and admiration of the United States all over the world. But there's also a lot of, you know, the other thing. So um, I think Duke generally, though, unless you went there, you hate that place. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I went to Florida, man. So, you know, like, I was a big sports school, you know. And Florida, I think, actually has some of that, too. Like, you love the University of Florida or you're just kind of like, mm, I, don't know. I don't know. I don't know. We're good at a lot of sports, though. I'll just put that out there. I, I do that. And I don't have, and I'm kind of, oh, okay, that's nice. You know? <laughs> do you guys think, so Chris and I are both in Boston. Do you guys think Boston cream pie, or or I'll even put, I'll even put the donut in there. 
um what's the donut the supposed oh, donut boston cream donut are those good do you guys think those are good are those okay. good for boston to attach itself to i'm gonna answer this before i answer it i'm gonna give you back a little more background about myself i'm originally from san diego okay. um i was born and raised and didn't come out to boston until i was 18 uh and then i lived in boston for a while and then i was up down the east coast and then came back to boston about 10 years ago um and i grew up uh, with uh, my grandparents and my mother, Mexican immigrants. So I had never even known that the Boston cream pie or its donut equivalent existed until I was in Boston. Yeah. And it is the most disgusting thing that <laughs> I've ever put my lips to. So I can't stand it. Strong stance. <laughs> so it's the Duke of Donuts. <laughs> 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 well, no. shout it, out to Duke, man. Shout out to Duke. I got a lot of good friends with the Duke. It, it's not the Duke of Donuts because it's not because to, to Chris's point, it's not ubiquitous. You know? it's, yeah. it's this like offshoot donut and pie <laughs> that like some sector of the East Coast thinks is really delicious. And I got to be honest, like I just like apple pie is so much better. <laughs> Like if I'm yeah. having a pie, donut, a honey glazed donut is delicious. Way like, better. you ever see that Simpsons episode where Homer's like in hell and he's just being <laughs> donuts and he just wants more? That's me and the honey glazed donut. Like, I love honey glazed donuts. I can never like the cream. I like the cream is just gross. If it yeah, was right, if it was just a donut with chocolate on it without anything inside, mwah. Yeah. Like, it's weird because I actually kind of like it, but. I like creamy food. Like it's just it's it's like exactly what I want. But it's it's it's, it's really decadent and overindulgent. But I man, I bite into interesting, the right? It's interesting, yeah. right? It's the combo. Like pastry pastry cream is delicious. And yeah. in Boston, uh, the North End has these pastry shops, which are amazing, right? So go there, get something that has pastry cream and chocolate there. Cannoli. Then, we're then you're talking my language, but for some cannoli. reason, the combo, the combo is Can bad. Cannoli is the vibe. Like, okay. cannoli is the vibe. Cannolis are the vibe. Well, we, should, we should end there. We should end there. Cannoli is the vibe. Oh, wait. No, we can't end there. We can't. We, no, because, like, I, I leave it to me to be the guy who comes to Boston's defense. Because <laughs> I hate all Boston sports teams, including the Celtics, who we haven't discussed, who I am not a fan of. Um, uh, but, man, clam chowder. Like, that's, that's, that is the signature thing of when I think of Boston. And, like, that's good. My favorite, I mean, a good clam chowder, but... One of my favorite things to do in, in going to Fenway Park, uh, in, if it's either April or October, is to get a clam chowder. Oh, God. Now we're talking. See, we can end on that note. We got to end on a positive, man. Clam chowder is delicious. Clam <laughs> chowder is good. <laughs> All right, Chris. Thank, hey, thanks for joining us. Uh, you've got a lot of reading to do behind you. To <laughs> so, hey, start, start from you the go. Top. Yeah, and then let us know when you're done. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure. Oh, when I'm done, we'll have another conversation. I'll let you know how it went. That's right. That's oh, right. Thanks for having me on. It was great talking. Yeah. Yeah, bro. Too. All right, you can you could log off. We do like a two minute intro afterwards, but uh, that was awesome. Thank you. Later, man. Good to I, see I you. Conversation. See you guys. Bye. Good to see you, buddy. Yes.